Mark chapter 14, I want to read beginning with verse 32. <clears throat> Once you've found that, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I pray now that this word which is alive, which is living, <clears throat> would find its way into the very depths of our souls so we might see here something that perhaps we've never quite seen to appreciate about our Lord Jesus another, another aspect of him something so real that it's not penetrated our hearts so I pray we see it in all of its fullness that we might know him better and rest in him more and I pray this in Jesus name Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he turned, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same night. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is a very difficult scene to watch. Jesus, in these moments in tremendous agony, so much so that he's to the point, he says, of death, not meaning that he wants to die so much as the pain, the pressure, the stress, all that's upon him is at this moment is making him feel as if at that particular moment he's going to expire. At that particular moment in time, he's going to lose his breath. At that particular moment in time, he's going to die. That's the agony in which he found himself. There were other moments prior to this that were difficult to watch. There was that scene of Judas amongst all the other disciples and you knew betrayal was coming. There was that word from Peter that he didn't know who Jesus was. He wasn't associated with him. There would be difficult times to watch ahead Jesus being tried, Jesus being beaten, Jesus hanging on a cross. Yet this moment is a very difficult one to watch. Jesus in such tremendous tremendous agony and we wonder why we wonder why in the sense that one of the things that's impressed us most about Jesus up until this point was how calmly he faced death how calmly he faced the prospects of his own crucifixion he would tell his disciples calmly seriously but yet calmly over and over again that I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to be beaten I'm going to be killed I'm going to rise again on the third day he spoke of that very often in fact just a day or two before John records this for us, Jesus uh, said this. 
He said, now, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knew why he had come. And just a day or two before, even though his heart was troubled about it, you get this sense of, of confidence in Jesus, this sense of courage in Jesus, this sense that, that he's, he, he wouldn't say at that day, on that moment, in, at that moment in time, take this from me. He said, no, I'll face it. This is why I've come. He knew himself to be the Lamb of God who was to take away the sins of the world. He knew he had come to die. In fact, that very night, just previous to that, he stood with his disciples around the table and he took bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He took a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus calmly before them said, I'm going to die. That's what's going to happen. And now we see Jesus pleading, crying before his father. No, 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 not this. Please take this cup from me. Take this away from me. What was going on? Had Jesus lost his nerve? Was he, was he in sin at the midst of, of this prayer before his father? Was the salvation of humanity now wavering in doubt? Was God's plan somehow up for grabs? What was really going on? Now, to show that this isn't a new question, let me quote from a 17th century friend, John Flavel. He says this. He says, here's the difficulty. How Christ, who knew God had from everlasting determined he should drink it, who had compacted and agreed with him in the covenant of redemption so to do, who came, as Jesus himself acknowledges, for that end into the world, who foresaw this hour all along and professed when he spake of his bloody baptism with which he was to be baptized, that he was straightened till it was accomplished. How, I say, to reconcile all this with such a petition, now that when the cup was delivered him, it might pass, or he be excused from suffering. This is the knot, K-N-O-T, knot. This is the knot, Flavel writes. This is the difficulty. And so it is. But when we come to this particular scene, we come to see what's there. we must come with a great deal of humility, a great deal of caution, a great deal of reverence, a great deal of respect. In a sense, we must come and gaze upon Jesus as he's in this particular situation, as he's in this garden, as he's in such personal agony. We must come, in a sense, on tiptoes with our hands sort of before our eyes because we want to see that yet the moment is such an intimate one because here's the very Son of God the very Son of God, Son of God who agreed with his Father before the creation of the world that he would come and that he would save, that he would come and he would give his very life to save sinners. And here is his Father who loves him so, the very one who sent him. And now in the midst of all this, Jesus finds himself in tremendous agony, pleading with his Father that this cup would pass. So the question is, we gaze upon Jesus in this moment is, what do we see? What's really happening here? First, that we see first and foremost the very necessity of the cross of Christ for the salvation of sinners. By that I mean this, that here we have the very Son of God. We have Jesus who, who loves his Father and loves his Father's glory. 
desires nothing more than his father to be glorified. And he loves his father. And his father loves him. The father loves the son with an everlasting love. And certainly as the son comes to plead with his father, please, if there's any other way for sinners to be saved, if there's any other way for you to be glorified, please find it. Surely if there was any other way other than Jesus going to the cross, his heavenly father would have spared him that agony because his father loved him. And certainly if there was another way to save sinners, his father would have found it. But you see, his father didn't cause the cup to pass from Jesus. He caused his son to go through it. And since he caused him to go through it, in essence, he said to his son, no, you must go this way. No, you must go to the cross. That really is the only way for sinners to be saved. That is the only way for sins to be forgiven. Thus, there is no other way. We have right there before our very eyes the evidence, the proof. There was no other way other than Jesus, the very Son of God, to go to that cross. And what way could there be? Because, you see, God is just. And to be just, he has to justly punish that which is wrong, that which is wicked, that which is evil, and anything against him, anything that isn't committed to love him with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, is sin. And thus, you see, deserves to be punished. But if God is going to be just and punish the sin of sinners, and if all have sinned, then none can be saved. So how is it that God, as the Bible says, can be just and the justifier of anyone? Only if there is one found worthy to stand for all the others. Only if There is one who is found worthy to take himself upon himself the punishment, the sin of sinners, and receive the very wrath of God upon himself. Only if one is willing to stand for all the others and worth all the others, and that one is Jesus himself. His father says, I know your agony. I know the pain. I know the plea, but I can't take this cup from you. Not if sinners are to be saved not if I'm to be glorified. And we see this too. We see Jesus as he faces this death becoming our high priest. You see, a high priest is one that that must be taken from the people to represent God. Therefore, he must experience everything that the people experience. He must know what it is to be a human being, to be a man. And here's Jesus a rational human being, a rational man facing death. And what we see come out of him is this great agony, we could even say this great fear, now you say. But haven't there been great men and great women throughout history who have faced death with far more courage than we see Jesus on his knees begging his father that he shouldn't die? Uh, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Don't, don't we see great people willingly standing at the stake, watching the flames uh, curl up around their feet all the way to their body, and they stand there with great joy and great courage to die. Aren't there even those who have no faith in God at all, who for country, for family, for principle, have died courageously? Of course, the answer is yes. 
that Jesus knew more than just simply facing death because he was concerned about the cup. He said, take this cup from me. But this cup would pass. What's that cup? Isaiah refers to the cup as the goblet of God's wrath. See, Jesus knew that it wasn't simply a physical death that he was dying. It wasn't so much that he was afraid of the cross. Oh, the, the physical agony, the physical pain of the cross was, 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 was unspeakable, but, but still men faced that. That wasn't the point. But he came and he knew that he hadn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that God made him who knew no sin to become sin. And thus he knew that what he was facing round the bend wasn't simply just the, the taking of his breath, the stopping of his heart. He knew that what was around the bend was drinking the cup of the wrath of God. He knew that what was around the bend was experiencing the judgment of God. And you understand that every rational thinking person who understands that that's what takes place at death, that you meet God and then the judgment. Everyone who would know that they were facing God to drink from his wrath, <clears throat> excuse me, drink from his wrath, would be in the very same state of agony as Jesus. Because, you see, it's right there that he becomes our high priest. It's right there that he experiences the agony of being a human being facing the judgment of God. And it grips and repulses everything in his soul. So much so that he says, no, anything but that. See, there are only two kinds of people who can die in peace. Christians and fools. And I mean that in the most biblical sense of the word. Christians because they realize that when they die and they face the judgment, they're forgiven their sins and they needn't drink the cup of wrath. The Bible defines a fool, however, as one who says in his heart, there is no God. That is to say, there is no judgment. And so if you don't really know God and you can pretend as if and believe as if there really is no God, that is to say, there really is no judgment, there really is no cup of wrath to drink, then <clears throat> and only then can you really die in peace if your sins haven't been forgiven. But Jesus, you see, was facing the judgment of God for us, as us, knowing what he would drink would be the very wrath of God to be forsaken by him. Thus, the author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. He writes, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness, that is to say. The high priest can represent rightly people to God because he sympathizes with them. He represents them rightly because he's weak as they are weak. At this moment in the garden, Jesus is our high priest. He knows the weakness of a human being facing the wrath of God. What we see in Jesus is in that moment is the rational response of a man who knows 
is going to face the wrath of God. So verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was, he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus went from disobedience to obedience. What it means is to be our high priest, he had to begin at the incarnation. He had to be born. Before Jesus came to the earth, he wasn't qualified, if I could say that reverently, to be our high priest because he wasn't one from among us. He had to be born. He had to come. He had to be not just the son of God, but he had to be the son of man. Not just God, but man. He had to take upon himself 100% human nature along with his 100% divine nature. Two natures, one person, mysteriously, in Jesus. And so he comes, you see, and he takes upon himself in the midst of suffering, our humanity, our weakness. And in the midst of that, he is obedient. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, that doesn't mean he was imperfect. It means he became our perfect high priest, our exact high priest, the very one we needed. Made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This moment in the Garden of Eden was, what, was not an aberration in the plan of God, but a necessity in the plan of God. It wasn't a sin on the part of Jesus, but it was precisely what he had to do as our high priest. He had to take upon himself a confrontation with the very one whose wrath would be poured out upon him and react like a reasonable, rational man. And that's what he did. Not only that, we see that since Jesus took upon himself the very fear of facing the wrath of God, we don't need to. See, Jesus suffered everything so that the immensity of that suffering wouldn't be ours. We needn't fear death because he did. He took everything related to death, everything that it could pour out on a human being, and he experienced it for us and as us. He already knew its fear, and he can turn to us, therefore, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and say, fear no evil. Jesus, fear no evil. We're going to die. We're going to face judgment. He says, relax. I've already done that. I've already feared that evil for you. And I've already satisfied. I've already drunk the cup of wrath. Thus, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 could write this. You heard this a few minutes ago. Verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He said, you don't need to be enslaved by the fear of death anymore. Why? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That is to say, what really stings us at death, what Jesus was being stung by 
in the Garden of Eden was the fact that he was going to become sin, that the sins of sinners was going to be put upon him. That was the sting of death. And the power of sin is the law, because the law condemns us. The law says you should have and you didn't. And thus now you deserve the cup of God's wrath. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But Paul goes on in verse 57. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory over death. In the sense that we needn't fear it. In the sense that we don't have to worry about that judgment. For Jesus has taken it. But he's also taken the fear as well because he experienced that in his own life. And so when we peer at Jesus, we know the necessity of the cross. When we see him in the midst of this garden, we know that he is our high priest, experiencing for us everything that a man a woman would experience facing judgment. We know that he takes that judgment before he drinks that cup of wrath so that we needn't be afraid, and thus we trust him even as we pray. Because as our faithful high priest, he does really understand everything because he's gone to the very depths of what it means to be a human being. He's gone to the very depths of what it means to experience the weakness of life and still conquered. And thus, when we pray to him, we know that he will listen. For instance, the author of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows the depths of our weakness. He experienced it right there in that garden. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Finally, we see this. We see in Jesus as our high priest both the necessity of prayer and a model for prayer. Both the necessity of prayer and a model for it. By necessity, I mean this. As Jesus came back to his disciples, they were asleep. He'd asked them to pray. They didn't. And so he said to them, watch and pray because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He says, you might want, but you're a human being. And you're weak because you're a human being. And so you need to pray. Why? Because when we pray, we lay before God our utter dependence upon him. And when we lay before him our utter dependence upon him, what takes place is that God fills us with his strength. That's the very grace that strengthens us. And if you'll notice, Jesus prayed and remained faithful. Peter, James, and John didn't pray, and they didn't remain faithful. And you say, but it was preordained that Jesus would remain faithful. He, he said he would, ultimately, that he'd be faithful. God said he'd be faithful. Peter, James, and John, uh, Jesus said the sheep would scatter. That's uh, true. But God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means. And if one's going to scatter, you can also predict prayerlessness. Jesus said, you must watch and pray. This isn't an option for the believer. You've got to do it. You've got to pray. Why? Because the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak, and you need the very strength of God. It's amazing to me. I often think of my own life, and I pray 
prayers of great thankfulness to God. It's so amazing that we're doing as well as we are for as little as we pray. I often think that. But not only was Jesus speaking of the necessity of prayer, but he was giving us a model to pray as well, especially in times of great difficulty. Notice how Jesus prayed three times. We know at least on the first occasion he prayed for an hour. So all we have is snippets, this one line, really, of what Jesus prayed. But we know that this was the the tenor, the tone, this was the theme of his praying. He said, all things with you, God, are possible. But if it is possible at all, indeed, let this cup pass from me. What was Jesus doing? Jesus, as as a rational human being, was looking at the tremendous difficulty of the circumstance. It was a circumstance in which everything in him repulsed And he said, if there's any other way, Father, for you to be glorified, if there's any other way for the sin of sinners to be dealt with, if there's any other way at all, please, let's avoid this one that's going to cause me such great pain. He's just thinking rationally. He's just thinking rightly. Who in their right mind would walk into that? At the end of that, Jesus said, but not my will, yours be done. That is to say, Father, if there is no other way, if there isn't any other way for you to be glorified other than me, go to the cross and drink the cup of wrath. If, if there's no other way for the sins of sinners to be dealt with other than me going to the cross and drinking the cup of wrath, then your will, not mine. Because ultimately, what I desire is not my ease, but your glory. Not my ease, but your purpose. When you and I go through difficult circumstances, my suspicion is, if you're thinking with me, you've got one, two, three, four difficult circumstances flowing through your mind right now. Cancer. The loss of one you love. A very difficult relationship. Tremendous loneliness. It may be that you're eking out a living and you'd rather not just eke out a living, you'd rather have more income. And it's a great difficulty for you. You may be battling depression, other difficulties, physical. You may be caring for elderly parents. And it's a great sacrifice on you, and you're wondering how you're going to be able to cope and survive. You may be caring for children that are, that are difficult to care for. And you look down the road of your life and you realize that this is going to be with you for a long period of time and you're wondering if you're going to have the strength to sustain that. And you go to God, what do you say? Now Jesus, our representative, models for us a prayer that goes like this. Oh God, if there's any other way than this tremendous pain, if there's any other way than this tremendous struggle in the context of my life, could you, could you please grant it? If my healing could glorify you as much as my illness, please, could you grant that? If having a better job could glorify you as much as me eking out a living, would you grant that? If you could could help this one I'm helping so my sacrifice isn't so exhausting and so tiring and so consuming, could could you grant that? 
if, if it would glorify you as much for me to have a happy marriage as opposed to being in this very difficult marriage, could you grant that? If, if it, would, it would glorify you as much for me to parent in the context of children who are obedient and happy as opposed to ones who are, who are depressed and difficult, could, could you grant that? Father, if you, could, if you could remove this difficult situation from me and still be glorified, if you could remove it and still have me be sanctified and grow in holiness, if my holiness wouldn't be impeded at all by a different set of circumstances, I could, Father, you please grant that. But you see, that isn't a prayer that's lacking in faith. That's a prayer of faith because at the end you say, but Father is the only way, the best way for you to be glorified is for me to continue in this illness. If, if, the, if, the, if the way for you to be glorified is for me to sacrifice over and over again for this parent or this child or this one I'm helping, if, if, if my poverty glorifies you, if me eking out a living glorifies you, so be it. Your will, not mine. And this isn't, even, this isn't just a resignation. This isn't saying, okay, God, you're in charge of circumstances. You're a sovereign over circumstances. And since this isn't changing, then I'll just put up with it. It's not that. It's going to God and acknowledging the pain. It's going to God and laying out the difficulty. It's going to God and agonizing, wrestling with him as Jesus did, but yet in faith saying, if this cup doesn't pass, if this difficulty doesn't go, then God... I will embrace it with joy. Not with resignation, but with joy. The scripture tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus didn't leave this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I guess I got to do it. I guess there's no other choice. I guess... He just said, no, and now I've got to go to the cross. I've got to drink the cup of wrath, so I guess I will. But no. He said, this is going to be the most agonizing death, for in it I must experience the forsakenness of my Father. I must take upon myself sin. I have no sin in me. I hate sin. Sin repulses me, Jesus says, because he would know more than anybody else how horrible sin was and how evil it was and how much it, it, it disparaged his father and dishonored his father. He would hate it, but he said, I'm going to take that upon myself and I'm going to do it in joy. Not a giddiness, not a, he didn't go to the cross laughing. He didn't go to the cross snickering. He went to the cross in great seriousness, but deep in his guts was this sense of trust in God. This is right. This will glorify my father. This is best. This will save sinners. And thus I'll endure it. And I'll endure it with this sense of joy. And thus you see in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our circumstances, and we pray very honestly and agonize with God, God, this is hard, this is difficult, I don't know if I'll be able to survive it. Is there any other way for you to glorify yourself, for me to be made holy, for others to, to see a testimony of your goodness? Is there any other way, please, if there is, granted, but if not, I won't simply resign myself to this, but I'll take it up in a sense of trust in a sense of joy. Trusting that you love me and that there is any other way you would grant it. Trusting 
that you are perfectly wise. And if there was any other way, you'd know it. Trusting that you are ultimately an almighty. And if there's any other way, you'd bring it about. And if this cup stays with me, if this difficulty doesn't pass, then I'll trust you. And I'll grab a hold of it with everything I've got. Enjoy. Knowing you'll be glorified. And knowing I'll be blessed. Now, I'm not unaware that there are people here struggling tremendously with all kinds of illnesses, with all kinds of life difficulties, with all kinds of tremendous struggles over which we agonize. I'm not unaware that our country may be on the brink of war. I'm not unaware that there are many, even amongst us, who are being called up and face the prospects of being in a war, whatever dimensions it may bring to us. But I'm also not unaware that our high priest knows all of that. And I'm also not unaware that when Jesus agonized in that garden, just like us, that he took upon himself the fear of even death so that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of difficulty, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of hard circumstances, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we needn't fear evil. Why? Because we know this Christ is with us, this very Christ who experienced all that we experienced. He knows how we feel, and he's with us. And if the cup doesn't pass, if war comes, if cancer comes, if death comes, if difficulties come, we know our sovereign God. And thus we can plead with him and then live through it, walk through it. And that, you see, even, please forgive the irrationality of this thought, even with great joy. Because, you see, that's not an irrational thought at all. If we trust Christ, let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for us that we can grab a hold of life with joy because we trust Christ. And even seeing Jesus on our behalf agonize in the garden, at God we can know that at that moment in time, he entered into every fear, every heartache, every agony that a human being could know and then some, I suppose. And he represented us, so we pray that you would help us to be filled with grace from him and to follow him in every circumstance and situation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> As you do, I remind you that there will be elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Now, I want you, if you would indulge me, if you would do this, if you haven't already, to think, to think of something in your own life, one thing, two things, maybe more, but something in your own life about which you're agonizing that is tremendously difficult for you and 
if you had your way, it would pass by you. But yet it seems not to be passing by you. It seems to be staying right there. I want you to think of that. I want you to listen to the benediction, to receive it from God. And then as your response, say, praise be to God, amen. And when you say praise be to God, you say, this isn't passing. I've already wrestled with it, but it's here. Thus, praise to God, amen means so be it, but not a resignation, but joy. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.